At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Bass fishing, bass fishing, bass fishing, and how to make a bass rod out of a Zebco fishing reel and an extending steel radio antenna. How about that for a show, Aaron? That's some bass, as they might say on the old Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Yeah, tell us, tell us who we talked to. This is an interesting fellow. Yeah, I mean, today we talked to Steve Bowman, an old friend of mine, but uh, a lot of folks, if they're at all into watching fishing on television, they have seen him as part of the Bassmaster series for years and years. He runs all of their tournament coverage for Bassmaster.com. Um, he works with all the anglers and, and keeps them on board and works all that out. I mean, if they're, if they're fishing with bass, he's the one dealing with them. Uh, and, and I know Steve from his days as a writer with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. He wrote probably the best modern waterfowl book, the Arkansas Duck Hunter's Almanac, that is just a, it's an iconic book in this part of the world on the Mississippi Flyway. So uh, Steve's just a cool guy to talk to, and he has more great stories. But his passion for getting kids involved because of his own childhood is, is what really kind of anchors any talk with Steve. Yeah, that, that part was really that just caught me and it was a really awesome story and just kind of a reminder too to folks you know especially for us we get caught up in this like professional conservation life right where there's all these things you have to do and there's steps to it in there but you forget sometimes that nobody's in conservation if they don't get introduced to it somehow that's, that's right a, that's a key thing he brought and i, I was really appreciative of that yeah we we need people we need people Yep, and we need the ones who care and, and are passionate about it, and that uh, starts with having that cool opportunity first, and that's that's what he he really helped do that in many many different places. It's clear, and he just it's a good storyteller. A lot of these guys you bring on, Bill, I'm like, man, this I want to sit around a fire with this guy. You know, that's where that's where the good stuff comes. It's hard to you know fit it all in this one hour format that we do, and we, we get a lot of good stuff, but I know there's so much more. Oh yeah, absolutely. We could do three hours and it would just, it would just keep growing. Well, enjoy this one, folks. Steve Bowman, uh, what is it? Bass is the organization. Every time I say that, I'm like, is that really what it's called? That's the name. <laughs> yeah, from Bass, <laughs> who runs all the bass tournaments. Enjoy. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws of American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are 
NWF Outdoors. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast. I'm Bill Cooksey here with host Aaron Kendall. What's going on, Aaron? Oh, another day in paradise, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Today, if you're a bass fisherman or duck hunter or really anybody in the outdoors, but especially a bass fisherman, you're going to want to listen to this show. The guy we have on, I've known him for probably I think I first met him about 30 years ago when he was hanging out at WMAs writing about duck hunting for the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. But since then, he has been in the Arkansas Outdoors Hall of Fame, the Waterfowl Hall of Fame, the Bass Fishing Hall of Fame. He's the manager of uh, Bassmaster.com tournament coverage, the manager of Angler Relations for Bass. Again, he's been the outdoor editor of the Democrat Gazette. He wrote the Arkansas Duck Hunters Almanac. And he's also a sheriff's deputy, and most of all, he's Barbara's husband. So, Steve Bowman, welcome to the show. Man, I appreciate you guys letting me come out and hang out for a little bit. So, uh, it's always it's always good to hook back up with you, Bill. It, and it has been thirty or forty years at least. So, it, a we're a little grayer, a lot little grayer. bit grayer, a lot grayer, a lot fat. <laughs> Well, we always start off the show talking about what we've been doing outdoors. So let's start with you. What have you done outdoors lately? Well, I just got back from uh, Lake Fort, Texas. We had our Bassmaster Elite there where uh, Lee Livesey just kind of coasted to another blue trophy and and one of uh, the more amazing fisheries in the country. And uh, prior to that, I mean, I spent every day I could sitting against a tree and Throwing out a little bit of yelping and uh, hoping to call in a, a long beard every once in a while. So, but, I hope you had at least a little bit of luck. I did. I mean, I you know I I love uh, turkey hunting right now. My turkey season's over, and uh, you know I I do a, all kinds of things in the outdoors. But when it gets to this point, and I tell everybody they'll listen. I'm just wasting time from till you know until next turkey season. I mean, that's all I'm doing right now. Wasting time <laughs> trying, to, trying to make it go away until the next turkey. Because really, that's what I, I love to do. And I love, I love, uh, I've hunted most of the states and, uh, in the country. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And, uh, just love, I mean, I, I could, I could do that. I wish I could do it every day. So, but I'm hip. Well, speaking of turkeys, Aaron, how about you? <laughs> Well, yeah, we're going to take this time. I, Steve, you should know too. I spent a lot of time talking about my kid. I, I'm proud of him. He's such an inspiring, awesome young hunter. And we'll talk about him again. He got his first turkey last week. Uh, oh. Went out without me. One of the first times he ever went without me, and he got it with the with the buddy. But close to home here, about ten minutes from the house, which is really cool. About nine thousand feet, he found him a tom and. Uh, we worked on it together. Had a little setback when the dog got a hold of the fan. <laughs> uh, and that, that involved, basically, we have a ping pong table in the garage. And we set the had the fan up there with some salt on it, trying to dry it out a little, you know. And my daughter says, well, I want to play ping pong. Well, we haven't played ping pong in a while. So I said, okay, we put it on the <laughs> ping pong table, set it down on the cooler next to the ping pong table, thinking, well, as soon as we get done, we'll put it right back. Well, we never even ended up playing ping pong because – we got distracted on something else, forgot about it, came home and heard my boy out there hollering, and it was because the dog had taken the whole thing apart. 
but we reconstructed it and, and got something serviceable and a good memory. So anyway, that happened. My, my other thing outside is, you know, we've been doing a little bit of shed hunting. It's that time of year. We like going out and wandering new country. There's a, there's a unit we're looking at this year for some elk that we just decided, Hey, we'll go wander around and see if we can find some sheds while we're at it. And, uh, <laughs> got Steve's ringer on or something there. That's right. But, uh, found a really cool shed this week with about a 25 inch drop time, which is, which is really interesting. So I'll have to show you some pictures or maybe we'll put a picture with the, wow. with the, uh, with the podcast email here, but just getting out in the woods as much as I can. And we had 17 inches of snow over the last four days here at my house too. So we needed it. It was dry as a bone and now we have some moisture. So all things are looking up. Wow. I'm thinking a 25 inch drop time. That's like a big main beam on any of the cervids in our part of the world. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty incredible. It's a cool, it's a cool shed. Wow. That's awesome. Uh, well, let's see. I, last week I was in Mississippi doing some work and, and stayed at a remote hunting camp. And this was kind of cool. Three uh, hall of fame quarterbacks from Louisiana. It's where they duck hunt. Uh, all year so when you go around the lodge and see Peyton Eli and and Archie in photos with their kids and all holding ducks that was pretty cool but best of all my wife and I got to spend this past weekend fishing on Kentucky Lake and and we actually caught bass uh, so that's always fun even missed a little bit of, of Bassmaster on the tube on Sunday morning because the fish kept biting on up into the morning pretty good so yeah it's, it's been good um, and obviously always enjoy the chance to get out on the lake Let's get this story started because um, Steve has a good story and it starts at the beginning. I mean, one of his best stories really comes out of his childhood uh, and, and it's his antenna fishing rod story is, is what I think of it as. So, Steve, let, let's start about, you know, with you growing up because it wasn't, you know, it's not like you had dad, you know, holding your hand and taking you out hunting and fishing right. from the start. Well, I mean, you know, and I, I didn't, uh, I had an absentee dad and, uh, uh, we all have, we all have dads and some of them play bigger roles and, than others, but mine didn't play much of any role. And, but I, and I, and I grew up in town. Uh, now it was kind of, you know, it was little rock. Uh, I was close to the edge of town. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I, I could actually walk to hunt and walk to fish, but, we had a little old pond there close to the, to the house that, uh, the neighbor boys, we would jump the fence and everything. I was, you know, back then we're talking, you know, uh, 70, uh, eight, 71, 72, right in there. And, and I wanted a, a fishing rod rather than a stick and a string. And, uh, and so I, was able to, back then, a lot of folks don't remember, Expect you know, Aaron's probably too young to remember, but we had uh, telescoping antennas on the cars. I mean, you just pull it up, pull it down, whatever, just like a, on a, a transistor right. radio, you know. I remember. I'm glad that you're saying that I'm not that old. Oh, well, so I mean, I too, so. <laughs> uh, but I, I, there was an old Ford Falcon. I got a, an antenna off of it, and, and it was long, and you know it wasn't. It was probably five and a half feet long. But uh, I converted that into a, a fishing rod, and 
uh, pull caps from beer cans and uh, a neighbor's father soldering iron and solder those on there for the eyes. And then I got me a, I, I mowed grass and everything. We didn't have any money. I couldn't ask anybody for anything, but I saved up a whole summer, uh, just a little m- money on the side because pretty much we mowed grass. That wasn't my money. That was the family's money, you know. And uh, but I got to keep twenty five, fifty cents, whatever. And eventually saved up about nine, ten dollars. I think it was nine dollars and eighty nine cents. The Zipco thirty three at the Sterling store, and I bought me one. And I duct tape and electrical tape that thing to that uh, antenna, and that's what that was my fishing rod. And I thought it was the finest fishing rod in the world. I mean, he couldn't have convinced me any different, you know. And I, I, but I, you know, the whole thing revolved around that little pond near the house where I could get away and, and be a boy, do the things that uh, young boys need to do to grow into to men that are have a little bit of wildness at heart and a little adventure in them and that kind of thing. And so I, that pond there was my opportunity. And then after that, you know, my mother really instilled in me when you have, you know, you make the best of your opportunity. You know, nobody's going to do this for you. You do it, you know. So that's where the rod came in. And that, so that was really at a, a uh, uh, driving force in my life as a young boy. Um, years later, I went to, uh, I was, you know, I went to work for the Arkansas Democrat as a layout and design artist of all things. I won some awards in college and that kind of thing. I hunted and fished all the time. And I went to work at the newspaper and I would, you know, my shift didn't start till noon or four. Then I'd work till midnight or, you know, two or three in the morning to get the newspaper out. And, and so I would show up. I'd been hunting and fishing that morning. I had blood on my hands and fish smelling like fish, whatever. And they gave, I got the opportunity to be an out, the outdoor writer. And, and uh, they actually said, we want you to do this. We're, we're getting rid of the guy that was doing it. We, we want you to do it and until uh, we find somebody new, you know. And so I did that for many years. And, uh, and actually, I had that chip on my shoulder as a younger, as a young, you know, that was built when I was a kid that, you know, I didn't, I didn't have a dad to take me fishing. I didn't have a dad to take me. I, taught, I learned it all myself or through reading or through just listening to others and, and making the most of whatever opportunities I crossed. And uh, I did something for who, Governor Mike Huckabee, and I, I racked my brain trying to remember what it was. Uh, it wasn't anything, you know, like I didn't go kill anybody or anything, but it was just <laughs> he made the mistake of saying, well, you know, what can I do for you? And, and I said, I, I'm going to show you. So I got in his black suburban with his state troopers and we drove to basically an area downtown Little Rock and I showed him a creek and I said, this creek right here, if it had a weir right there, it'd back up water and we'd have two or three acre pond here that kids could fish in you know, and Huckabee was a big fisherman. He understood immediately and he used his discretionary emergency funds, whatever. And, and 
you know, three, four, five months later, we had a we had a pond at one of the busiest intersections in in Little Rock, and and that was important to me. But what happened with that? We were doing a dedication to this pond, and we had all the newspaper reporters and television cameras and bunch of folks, and there was a picnic table full of cheese and. Uh, toothpicks and fruit and all that, a bunch of bunch of white folks standing around looking important with cameras, right? And I look over to the side and there's this little African-American boy, about nine or 10 years old, his name was Tyrone. I didn't know that at the time. But he's standing over there just kind of peeking around the corner, just looking. I'm always drawn to that kid because I was that kid, right? So I walked over to him and I knelt down and I said, well, you know, what's, how, how you doing? What you doing? He goes, well, what are y'all doing? And I said, well, we're dedicating this fishing pond so people can go fish here. He goes, well, who, who can fish here? And I was like, you can fish here. This is your pond. That was it. The kid turned on his heels and ran away from me as fast as he could. Now near, near, near this intersection is the, Little Rock Zoo, and they had grown a buffer of bamboo around it. You know, was a noise buffer and a sight buffer for for the animals on the other side. I didn't know, you know, and I hadn't really ever thought about it. Twenty minutes later, sitting up there messing around with all these muckety mucks, and I look over on that weir, and there's Tyrone. He had run straight from me to the zoo and rode down. It was 20, 25 foot piece of bamboo. And I don't know how he got it off at the bottom, but he broke it off at the bottom and, and it still had green leaves on it. And he's standing on the weir. He'd taken his shoelaces out of his high tops. And we had had these little hook packages and bobber packages and stuff there. And he had somehow another, I still wish I'd have taken pictures of how he had, put his hook on his shoestrings from his high tops. And he was fishing. And, you know, he was fishing. Now, what the part of that story that you don't understand being from Tennessee and Aaron from uh, up there in the mountains is at that very time, HBO was filming a documentary three blocks from there called Banging in the Rock. There were kids dying every night. The gang lifestyle was terrible in the 90s for uh, Little Rock, and so much so that it was on HBO, but it was it was prevalent all over the country. So here's a kid that's right on the verge of either going into a gang or going fishing. And he's taking the opportunity to go fishing. And, and so everything just... You know, God has a way of making things clear and clear as you go. But he put it in my head right then that opportunity is something we don't focus enough on. We'll focus on, you know, a better boat ramp, you know, 100 miles from any African-American young child or any poor white boy who didn't have a father or whatever, but, but we want, we, what, what are we doing to create opportunities for the, the truly less fortunate?
the, the fortunate and, you know, and it's not like they're, they're just desolate, but they're just not close to it. And, and so that was always important. And, and even now, I mean, I drive around in other cities and I said, man, you know, I try to tell the leaders, if, if y'all would do this, you gotta, if you want to save hunting and fishing, you got to figure out how to get it on third May. You know, you got to figure out how that, Amen. you know, and because though that's where we're losing right there. That's where we've lost for the last 30, 40 years is we, we don't, we don't give these kids who would love to go to the extent of using a car antenna or a bamboo rod that they wrote down and to just go fishing. You know, I sit on that bank and I learned about the environment. I understood at some point in time that, hey, these fish really get active about, you know, May, start bedding. And then I started, uh, you know, I see how the, when the worms were under the logs and under the leaves and the bugs and this and that. I mean, there, you, you, you start learning so much because you get into it. And we've sanitized so many things and then we pushed the important things that are important to, to all of us so far away that you've got to be pretty fortunate to get to them. I mean, Lake Fork is not a place where kids, there's not in the Lake Fork elementary school. I don't think. I mean, you know, um, Kentucky Lake has communities around it, but it doesn't have, you know, uh, an opportunity for uh, a great, you know, multitude of kids to go sit on the bank. We all started sitting on the bank. Right. You know, and, and so that's all, that's always been very important to me is, is one, we impart the knowledge of how to catch, kill, capture, trap, whatever, the reasons for that, the beauty of that, and try to figure out how we can get more of these elements into mainstream or into elementary mainstream or whatever. Cause I'm telling you, man, you can go. One of my best friends in this business is David Healy. He and I started the college bass fishing thing in 2003 and he grew up in Manhattan and he has a similar story to mine, except he had central park, a bike right away. And riding through the Manhattan, holding this rod and reel in his tackle box on his handlebar. There's millions of us out there that want to do this, but we don't live where we have to worry about ticks and chiggers. You know, we, we have to worry about bigger and worse <laughs> things. And, and that's where we grow up. But I'm just saying, we, we, we've, we've diverted our focus. I want to keep things pristine well away from the towns and the cities and everything. Those are, those are places that we all strive to. But let's don't forget about some of the foundational things. And the foundational it, things begin with just as simple as an opportunity. It, it, is that Steve? Is that kind of is that kind of where some of the uh, the high school and collegiate fishing comes from, or, or the idea when when y'all were starting that? Well, the, you know, the college thing. You know, at the, at the time, the college thing, and and Healy was very. Uh, you know, his whole deal was, you know, he, he thinks things critically and he's like, you know, I read a study where, uh, 
even kids that fish from, you know, at a young age, if sometime in, you know, the time they're 16 to 21, we lose them. And then we regain maybe 15%, you know, and I was like, dang, that's pretty profound. You know, what do we got? So we started talking about college. The first year we put together the college bass fishing thing, we, we could find six college teams to do that. Now there's thousands. There's hundreds of kids that are going to school in your state and other states on the scholarship to fish. Now, the, so the, the progression of that was, okay, well, maybe there's something in high school and then junior high. That we never envisioned that, I'll be 100%. Never even thought that that would be the deal. But the, the ripple, that just goes to show you what the ripple effect is that's creating an opportunity. When I was in college, I didn't know what bass fishing was. I'd take my little antenna and somebody gave me a, a big end. It wasn't a big O, it was a big end. And, and I thought, you throw it out there and let it sit. Looks like a fish. Something's going to swim up there and eat it. Never did, right? And it scared me to death to hit a rock or a brush pile with it because it might get hung up. Well, it's made not to, but I didn't know that. And, you know, so we we don't know <laughs> how, you know, like I said, in college, I didn't know any of this. <clears throat> the, my introduction to bass fishing was through Ricky Green, which most people's like Ricky who well Ricky Green was the man you know in in the early 80s yeah he was and uh late 70s early 80s he was the man and he was in he was from the same hometown as my college so I got to I got to see some of that and get interested and then he took me under my wing a few years later or under his wing when I went to the newspaper and, and just became uh, an incredible mentor of knowledge and you know, we we need more of that, but we need a, a lot of it is just the introduction, the introduction of an opportunity. Uh, you know, I, I pray that Tyrone is still fishing today. But you know what? Yeah. The odds are that Tyrone is already dead by someone else's hand, right? I mean, that's what the odds are. I mean, that's the reality of the situation in that world. Uh, but I hope that he's not, I hope that he's fishing. I hope he's got kids. He would have kids now and, and, you know, and he's teaching them to fish. And, but, you know, I really got, I really got more in tune with all this during the pandemic. And I have, I have, uh, I have my fifth grandbaby this week. I got four grandkids that are old enough to go fishing with me. Two of them are, or three of them are adopted and two of them are African-Americans. And, and, uh, you just stop and think, you know, people take the people, you know, out of the equation and you're sitting wherever you are in town and like, where am I going to take, where am I going to take my grandson fishing where he can have a realistic opportunity to catch a fish, be safe, and, and get introduced to all this stuff. And there's, we stop building those places. We stop managing those places. We stop paying attention to those places. Those are the, those are the places that are full of junk and, you know, and really 
polluted or whatever if they're within a city or where they where the bad guys dump cars you know uh right so you know and like i said i told you that don't, don't get me started on some of this stuff i'll go forever i get passionate about it I really do. <laughs> uh, I have but, but you're you're right I mean, opportunity is everything, and, and let's face it, hunting and fishing, if you don't have someone bringing you to it, it's not an easy nut to crack. It's intimidating, It's uh, uh, and, and especially if maybe you don't look like the other people at the lake. Uh, I can imagine that's a, a, a barrier as well. So, you know, all of that's important if we want to keep this thing going. But Now, I've got to ask you about, about your career it, it just dawned on me you talked about since you didn't have anyone really guiding you along in hunting and fishing growing up and you did a lot through reading that sort of thing is is that maybe what led you to the journalism career no i'll be honest with you i i i uh, i loved to hunt and fish and and i had some mentors in my church that that i'd all i mean i i saw i mean I, i'm not i wasn't any different then than i am now I mean, you know, 75% of my, my thought process was, was, uh, about fish or deer or ducks or squirrels. I mean, dude, I'm just going to tell you, I've killed more squirrels, uh, than 99 point whatever percent of this world with a slingshot. I mean, you know, that's just what I did. Right. Uh, my sisters never could understand why, why all their jacks would come up missing because I'm going to tell you back then they made those lead jacks you know and they were hard and you could shoot one of them through a half inch plywood and uh anyway that's other stories but but i but i wanted to do that i want i wanted to figure people say well what do you want to do for a living so i want i want to hunt fish for a living i mean you know now you could say that and people say hey, there's people that are doing it back then nobody does that so i was always looking uh, I just knew that I wanted to hunt and fish and I wanted to make some money so I could go to the places and hunt and fish. <clears throat> I had uh, a couple of things. I was going to be a wildlife biologist and I was too dumb for that. And uh, so the next best thing was uh, communications or, and I became the sports editor for the yearbook and made sure that hunting and fishing was part of that. And, and got some things going and then, you know, had an opportunity. But when I went to work at the Democrat, I told, I told my boss, I said, Hey, uh, I'll do anything you want me to do. Just don't ever ask me to write. <laughs> Wait, do what? I did. I was not hired to, to write. I had to teach myself to write, you know, uh, and, and it was a hard process. And I'm not sure that even today that I'm, uh, all that great of a writer. But I've written a lot of things. Uh, but I know when I get passionate that I can relay a story. And everything that we do, everything that you do, Bill, and everything that you do, Aaron, everything that a salesman does, and it doesn't matter if you're the president or the postman, the successful guys learn how to tell a story. They are telling a story all the time. Storytelling is, you know, it started in a cave, painted on a wall. But now it's, it's, it's gotten a little bit more refined. And I mean, you know, social media is all about telling a story. I, I want to ask you then, Steve, because what about a defining story that was, you know, maybe changed the, the, the trajectory of your life, the projection of your life, you know, because, you know, sometimes you get that right opportunity. You're talking to the right person. You can tell a compelling story and then 
you're off to the races in a different direction. Do you have something like that? Yeah, I think early in my career, there was, uh, that kind of got me started. Uh, there was some things going on here in Arkansas. Uh, back then we had a 30 day duck season. Uh, if you know anything about Arkansas, you know that it has got the best public land hunting system for waterfowl in the world period. Um, but there's also Bill tells me so. Yes. I don't know, but Bill tells me so. Yeah, the best <laughs> private land duck hunting in the world. Period. And I've hunted. I've hunted virtually every duck hunted virtually every state. Uh, you know, scouting for turkeys. No, uh, but you know, and the people that own those private lakes or private areas, they're 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 the most influential people. They're they're very rich and very influential. Well, I hunted by Amita. I was lucky enough when I was, uh, you know, 12 years old, 13 years old, an old man down the street, won't you just come with me? And, I, and you know, and I, I would, you know, I just love the place. Been lost in it more than anybody, but know it better than anybody. Not, not anybody, but most folks. And they would set these duck seasons, you know, early November, and by mid to late December, there would be no duck season for you know, I mean, it'd be over, right? And they'd pack it all on the front side. And and I'm like, man, they buy Amita and these places that I can go to now and White River and stuff, they're not even getting flooded until later in the season. You know, and having gone to college in South Arkansas, I realized that Felsenthal didn't get flooded until December. So half the state wouldn't didn't have an opportunity to duck hunt unless you were rich. And I wrote those things and I led a charge um, with a lot of people to rethink the duck seasons and the structures in Arkansas to where they wouldn't be so front heavy. We'd spread them out to where the public land guy that, you know, is going to drive from Little Rock that morning, doesn't have a cabin, going to walk out in the woods, kill him a few ducks. And, and really that kind of solidified my uh, popularity, I guess, if, if that's, that may be too strong a word, but it, but it gave me a readership and it, you know, and so the duck season dates and then a uh, couple things that um, they wanted to channelize the White River for, you know, barge traffic. I remember. And, you know, and I, I understand uh, by that time I had under, uh, understood what Rex Hancock had done for Cash River. I understood how the channelization of the Arkansas River had affected negatively uh, a, a central flyway duck in Arkansas. But, uh, but I could see where that was necessary. Could not see where the where the right river deal was necessary. So I came out against that and, and, and really got a lot of support and, and, and kind of, you know, those kind those are, those are a couple of the things, you know, I was able to, uh, with the help of some other folks, I mean, you know, I, there's nothing that I did on my own. Um, but sometimes I was the quiet cheerleader behind there. And sometimes I was the ramrod in front, but, uh, we, we created the three point rule for Arkansas, which is today is 98% of 
accepted and, and loved by deer hunters in Arkansas. And basically what we did and, and we knew we would do in some regard is we had 375,000 deer hunters in the state. And, uh, we knew that when that regulation came into place that we were going to go from 375 deer hunters to 350 deer managers and 25,000, you know, deer hunters. Uh, that shoot brown in this down kind of thing, and and uh, and you know, and I and and I, I have a I have a lot of uh, pride in the fact that that's still going strong. That there's more and more people know what a three year old and a four year old is. Greenfields and they and they're managing and they're doing this and they're letting things walk. And uh, and Arkansas is a pretty amazing deer hunting place. We may not kill the Boone and Crockett's that, that they have in Kentucky and. Tennessee, but, but we still kill somewhere between five and 10 Boone and Crockett's on free range property a year. And there's, uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, just, I want to say millions, but it's not, but millions of 150 inch class deer. Uh, I mean, you know, the things that we know now, as opposed to when I was young and coming up are so much more impactful and more um, necessary. I mean, you know, knowledge is power. And and the more people that you can give that knowledge to, some of us are, are genetically predisposed, even if we're sitting in Little Rock on the outskirts of town on a little pond, but to learn more, even if we're Tyrone in the middle of a gang war, we can, you know, I mean, I just, there's, we, we got to figure out how to, to get that tentacle more and more emboldened and more ingrained into our society. So. Well, I, I remember when that deer deal was going on in Arkansas and I don't remember the name of the program manager, but I do recall, I ran into him somewhere and, and asked how it was going, trying to get that accepted. And uh, he said, if you think it's hard managing the eight or 10 guys in your hunting club, try my hundred and whatever thousand or how many deer hunters you said. And he said, you don't get consensus. Right. You so. don't. And the truth of the matter is, is a hundred. I mean, the biologists at the Arkansas game and fish commission did not want to do this. If they were for it, it we would have boom, boom. But what had happened was in the eighties, they had recommended shutting down deer dogs in in the mountains. And, and they had, you know, then they had recommended shooting more doe in the eight, uh, later on in the eighties and uh, the death threats and that they were scared to change anything. And, and, you know, but they also didn't believe in the management and I get it. It's not a, that's not a cure all, but man, what happened with, what happened was, is the guy started doing a three point rule on uh, mandatory state and it started seeing the impacts. And the next thing you know, he's got eight point rule. I, I had presented to a lot of uh, clubs and everything before it was mandatory. And there's a club in South Arkansas that you can't even hunt there unless you take a deer age class. And you can recognize the age class of a deer before you kill, kill it. And they don't allow you to kill anything. It doesn't matter if it's got three points on one side, four points or 15 points, four year old or better before they'll let you shoot it. And they're killing 190 inch deer down there. 
I mean, that's that's a big deer anyway. When people say, "Well, you'll never grow big deer in Arkansas," I'm like, "Well, how do you know? Because you're killing that sucker. He got milk on his lips. You know, let him get a little age on." So anyway, those were the fun times. Howdy, listeners. For more great content, check out NWF Outdoors social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Connect with us. We want to hear from you. Send us your ideas for podcast guests and questions in the comments. And for even more excellent content, here's a message from our partner podcast. Hey everyone, this is Marsha Brownlee from Artemis Sportswomen. We know you love awesome stories about hunting, fishing, and conservation. So head on over to the Artemis Podcast. You'll meet adventurous, accomplished women who are redefining conservation through their lives in the field and on the water. Filled with humor, audacity, empathy, and intelligence, Artemis brings you new voices and introduces you to women from all walks of the sporting community. Find Artemis wherever you get your podcasts. A minute ago, you were talking about salesmen and storytellers. Yeah. So a man who I understand is one of the greatest salesmen of all time and one heck of a storyteller recently passed away, and he's a friend of yours. Uh, So let's talk about Ray Scott, what he did, you know, in creating bass and and also what that is meant to conservation and, and bass fishing in general. Yeah, we, people can't you can't minimize the impact of that one man on on hunting and fishing or this country. You know, someone mentioned that that uh, just the fishing industry in in this country is a four billion dollar in- industry, and I'm like, that's a little. I think that's a little low, but it may not be. But the things. That, you know, there's there's a lot of folks like me where it saved their life, right? So then now it's priceless. Uh, can't put any more zeros on. And But he had that kind of impact. You know, he created that industry out of uh, what he would call a brainstorm in a rainstorm, sitting in, in a, in a, at Ross Barnett in a, in a lodge somewhere in his underwear uh, watching a basketball game because he couldn't get out on the water, the, the storm coming through or whatever. And uh, so we need to be able to do that. You know, he's learning more about basketball, watching it now. He's like, how do we teach more people about fishing and, and the tournament aspect of that is there's nobody that could have pulled it off. There would be tournaments today, but they wouldn't have had the legitimacy that Ray Scott brought. They wouldn't have, I mean, you know, the things that he did and he understood the vision, the problem that, uh, you know, he, he pulled a lot of people along. And then he brought in guys like Bob Cobb, who was able to put those stories on paper and then television uh, because Ray Scott was a, he was a showman. And, and, and uh, he knew how to make a joke. Um, you know, he, he's the only guy that could get away with riding into a bass fishing uh, way in on an elephant. Uh, he knew how to whip up a crowd, but but he I, I, I'm not, and and he could tell a story in a short, concise deal. But to to really say, get dig in, you know, you needed the Bob Cobb guys. He understood the 
the importance of putting the right people in place. And he did that. But, you know, Ray was, uh, a lot of people say, well, he's doing it just to make money. Well, God bless him. Aren't we all? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in this chair because they pay me. You know, if I wasn't here, I'd be doing something. You know, I was at the newspaper because they, they paid me. Now, I didn't make the money Ray Scott did and never will. But uh, isn't that why we all are motivated at some point in time? And I'm glad that he made Absolutely. Money, you know, uh, but he also, he was also the guy that, you know, and he filed 200 and something Clean Water Act lawsuits in one day. And so, you know, I, I've had that conversation. I had that exchange with different so like, well, back in, not, I mean, you know, 20 years ago. Oh, he's all about race gut and, you know, and, and all he's wanting to do is make some money. I said, how many lawsuits did you file last week on clean water? You know, uh, he may, he may appear that way and he didn't care. He really didn't that he appeared that way. I mean, he, but he knew what he was doing. You know, and, and the catch and release mantra that the same catch and release mantra that that he started is that three point rule. If you're a deer hunter, you should understand that 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 catch and release deal because nobody caught and released when I was. You caught it, dude. You going to eat it? It's going in the grease. Period. You know, it wasn't all. Let's throw it back. Uh, but he brought that up, which saved some of our fisheries, created managers instead of catchers right uh, instead of fishermen but in order for him to do that and a lot of pe people don't know this but you know and you worked for avery years ago uh but avery wood the, the first catch and release tournament was ross barnett and avery wood uh didn't want them to release that fish i mean it's the idea that okay well we've handled them We've touched them and everything else. You're going to put them back in the water. You're going to put diseases in our fishery. It wasn't like he was like, I'm just hungry for a bunch of fish. I mean, Avery felt like he was in the right place. Avery was a big man. All them wood boys were big, big old boys. Oh, yeah. And uh, But they were going to come and take the fish that were caught at that tournament. And, and Ray Scott... Bob Cobb stood in front of them with baseball bats in their hands and said, y'all ain't touching these fish. We're putting them back in. You know, now the average person would say, if Ray's really all about that, then he, Ray would be like, okay, well, you're going to pay me $10 a fish, $5 a fish or a dollar a fish. And no, he's like, no, we're putting these fish back in. This is for our livelihood. He would fight. He would fight you. He would fight you. And, the lawsuits that he, the clean water lawsuits, the, the companies that he took on, the 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 catch and release thing, and and the issues that came out of all that, he would, you know, people like that don't come along very often. Cook, you know that. I mean, that's the guy that you want on your side all the time. Now there might be times you roll your eyes at him, and go, oh, we should shut up, but you know. <laughs> Ray Scott was the guy that you wanted to listen to. He's very charismatic. He was just a beautiful man. And, and a lot of people mischaracterized him uh, in some ways, but he, he had an impact on our world. I mean, we got bass fishing in Italy, Spain, New Zealand, South Africa, Japan, China, because of Ray Scott. 
you know, Canada. Right. Brandon Palinick the hottest, hottest angler on out there. And, and in Idaho, when he was born, there were no bass. I mean, you know, yep. it's making an impact and we can't, we can't associate with anything, but Ray Scott. And that's big. I'm rambling. Okay. How that's translated into conservation, because, you know, you kind of started getting to it in the beginning, but you got to have the opportunity and then you're doing it and then you get to catch and release and that lets more people do it. And it, you know, it kind of cascades. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that translation for, well, for folks who they went from just a regular bass angler to now maybe they go clean water, you know, how to habitat, all these things. Well, in the same way that, you know, the three point rule makes a deer hunter, a deer manager, uh, you know, the catch and release made you a manager. It made you pay attention environmentally to the important, and the tournaments have done that. I mean, the smartest guys on aquatic vegetation in the country that do not have a degree are bass fishermen, but guys that are on the elite yeah. series, the guys that are fishing tournaments, uh, the, the motivation for them to learn and be keyed in has been monetary. God bless them. You know, if you make money doing that and learn and do all that, I mean, it's the perfect system. I mean, they, they're all they're all very conservative. And I'm telling you, I mean, you know, the, the elite series that I work for now, every event we go to, uh, you know, 10, 20 percent of these guys will go and they'll they'll stay later or they'll go early and they'll take part in lake cleanups. Lead the charge. Hey, let's clean up your lake. Let's get these shopping carts out out of here and these beer cans off the bank and and uh, washing machines and and crap like that that has been thrown out there and uh, I mean and there's no monetary value for them to do that but now they they are now ingrained in hey we need to take care of this we need to do this you know and and you can see how they most of them handle their their catch and they want to keep them alive I mean. That's motivated by monetary, uh, you know, because if they they get fined or they they lose money if they kill a fish if their fish dies. The other part of that is it's okay they're going to learn how to better take care of a fish. All these guys are experts at fizzing a, a fish caught deep, you know, that is basically right. suffering from the bends, and they know how to heal that fish really quick and let that fish back. And, and they do that all over the country and they teach that all over the country. We, we focus on five big fish and, and the prize at the end of the day, hundred grand or 250,000, whatever that is. But the reality of it is, is that is a great motivator for them to create opportunities, you know, and to teach and to be the conservationist like Aaron was talking about. You know, we can't, we can't all be, uh, the little quiet lady, even Walden made money off books. You know, I mean, we, you know, we, we start learning, you know, I mean, we can't be poor and conservationists at the same time. I've tried that, you know, I mean, you can, but at the end of the day, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're more, you're worried about other things rather than the resource. And so it's fine if a guy can make a, a buck on that. 
One thing that Ray Scott should, one thing about Ray Scott on all that too is a lot of people don't realize, and I didn't really know this until this last week, and I so I don't know, I can't test to the veracity of it, but uh, he with his imperial whitetail clover, he was credited with starting the food plot craze. You know that that all went on, and and now every deer club's got a food plot. Every right. People have them behind their homes and everything else. They may not be blowing imperial whitetail cobra, but they all of a sudden understand that I can go out here in the woods and make an impact uh, with my quail. I can have an impact with my turkey. And then they want to do that. So I mean, another little plug for Ray in there. But you're around these pro anglers all the time. And I tell my wife, look, if you put their boat in here next to ours, they're going to outfish me every time and it's going to be ugly but for we weekend anglers watching these guys on television what would be the the number one two and three things you would really be watching and trying to pick up from them one of the things that uh, you have to know and, and you'll get to see it sparingly in in the show with their attention to detail you know whether that's how they tie a knot, uh, how they're looking at the environment and saying, I need to be doing this, uh, throwing this, this color, that color, or whatever. Knowing what the environment, how the environmental changes hour to hour change what the fish are doing hour to hour and how they can intersect that. Um, you know, just paying attention to, you know, and I, I don't, we, we get, you know, sometimes caught up on the weather too much, but the weather is the defining factor in so many of these things. The other is, is how the two speeds, there's two speeds of, of, of a bass angler, really fast or really slow. And when they're going really fast and when they're going really slow, you know, there are times when you got to move and there's times when you don't. And, you know, I can, I was talking to some of the guys that at Lake Fort, Florida strain bass. They're slow biting fish. And, you know, it's like this. I'm making a cast. It took me two and a half minutes to make the cast and get it back in. Well, I mean that's 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 a long time. Uh, and you know, so pay attention to the tempo of how they may approach some things. Um, you know you. I could, wished I could tell you something about electronics, but, you know, I'd just stick my antenna in the water, and if it was on the third deal, I knew I was deep enough, right? <laughs> but, I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're really smart about those things. But I can tell a guy um, like a Greg Hackney, he can look at uh, the weather, the water levels, how much rain, which is going to dictate the water color, and all that, and, and anticipate what is going to happen next week, tomorrow, or an hour from now. And, uh, you know, knowing the seasonal patterns, you know, those, that's the big, that's a big thing. So at Lake Fort, they all knew that they were coming off the spawn. There might be a few fish that were still spawning, but they were going to be coming off the spawn, heading to summer staging areas. And, and then there would be some that would get hung up because right after the spawn in lakes, in the south and southeast, we have a shad spawn. 
And that shots bond will take place at night and carry over into the morning for an hour or two. And you can catch a good fish or, or whatever. So, I mean, they, they, they understand every element within in that deal. And then they're looking for hard bottom. Hard bottom is maybe an environmental cause one of these days because so many of our lakes are silting in and the hard bottom is where he feeds, where he has sex, where he has babies, hard bottoms, you know, and different hard bottoms are, are, are important. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a lot to that game. Uh, right. You know, and I, I played a lot of sports and, and we've got a lot of, we've got professional, former professional baseball players, former professional hockey players, uh, really good college athletes at football and basketball doing this game. They'll all tell you, this is the hardest sport to play. I, I've always been amazed how many of them were, whether high school standouts or college standouts and, and right. in different sports. Right. And, Lee say played against Matthew Stafford's growing up, you know, so. That's pretty good competition. Right. I mean, you know, they, they learn the, they learn it's not any different if you if you really talk to Tom Brady and uh, uh, you see some of his stuff he digs into the game so much so that he got caught with two with a, a pound light of a football right available <laughs> yep just so he could grip it a little bit I mean there there's the, the fine lines of things are are important to being successful outdoors doesn't matter if you're in a tournament you're trying to figure out how to kill a turkey. Or, or if you're going to chase white tails, I mean they they learn that you control you control the variables that you can control. Which if you're a deer hunter, that means I'm going to practice a little bit more with getting my <laughs> getting my arrow on target or getting my my rifle sighted in. So when I do take that shot, that it's going to count. I'm going to have the confidence. Uh, I'm also going to pay attention to what the the needs or or whatever of whatever I'm chasing bass turkey deer waterfowl i mean you know I'm, you and i duck on a lot and I, and I and i love the fact that i'm around professional athletes i'm around professional deer hunters i'm around professional turkey hunters but i'm gonna tell you duck hunters are the dumbest people on the face of the earth <laughs> they have no idea what drives a duck and and you know and it's important because i'm gonna tell you rex hancock knew what a duck needed which is why he fought that but we've we've watered down that process, and uh, that education is not. I mean, it's so important. If a guy understands what a duck needs, he's going to make sure that what a duck needs is protected, which is where we wind up fighting the battles. You know, we want those duck those duck hunters to know, hey, we got to have these trees, we got to have this degrading leaf matter, so we can have the right kind of uh, invertebrate production. Uh, you know, or whatever that, I mean, you know, everything comes in and at different places, you know, they need more carbohydrates up here, more protein down here and that kind of thing. But I'm, I'm going to tell you the average duck hunter, at least in Arkansas, just doesn't, doesn't even think all they think is they need water. And need, yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Water, water and weather and past that, they're not thinking you know, much. You know, about you know but so when you say, Hey, we got to get water off by a meter. We got to get water off the White River, save some of these oak trees, and save some of this cover, and save some of this uh, stuff that is. Because really, if you ask most of us, say, "Well, a duck needs, uh, you know, some rice and an acorns." 
Well, by the time a duck gets to Arkansas, the acres are gone and the rice is gone. Period. Yeah. And they're here to build yeah. protein so they can have an eggshell when they get back to Canada. And then that's you, you you almost went there anyway and a, a few minutes ago you mentioned silt and that made me think about vanishing paradise and the sediment in the marsh you're involved in a lot of different conservation causes you know you're supportive of a bunch of different things let's talk as we wind this thing down about some of your pet things in conservation that that you're all all in on well, I'm all in on that. Sportsmen need to know about. Well, I'm Vanish Paradise is a big deal. I mean, you know, um, yeah, you may, it may be down there in Louisiana and then down there and this and that. And they don't, you know, I don't like them. I don't even like crawfish or whatever. It don't matter. I mean, you know, the, the whole, the whole country is a, uh, you know, was a living organism, the ground that we live on. And it's hard to it's hard to tell a person that. I mean, I'm I'm a very strong Christian, uh, but God made this world to work. You know, we man screws it up, and we can all agree on that. Everything that a man touches turns it into it. I'm talking about human human uh, man, but basically the Louisiana marsh. You know, we understand if you called me tomorrow and said, "Man, I got prostate cancer." And I got colon cancer. Well, you didn't take care of your prostate. <laughs> you didn't take care of your colon. Now you're going to kill the whole body because your outgo is all messed up. And that's our outgo down there. And it is, you know, um, I mean, you know, that's, it's as simple as I can put it. It's, it's a lot more complicated than sure. that. But, I mean, it is important. And it's, and it's screwed up not by... Mother Nature is screwed up by man, by the channelizations, the the core of destructions, and the you know now the oyster industry and every other industry that wants well you know we'll just we'll play God for a couple of years and make this our own. But I mean we we need more freshwater diversions down there to keep that stuff alive. Uh, Katrina would have had much less of an impact. Uh, on sure, the fences. The defenses for them down there is the defenses for us in other ways. And and that's important because the ducks that come through Arkansas that eventually go to Louisiana, they need to get what they need to come back through. And, they, and you know, in a duck in Arkansas, a lot of people don't understand that a duck in Arkansas can be in Louisiana, you know, in just a few hours. And and often right. do. I mean, we, we radio tracked them from – Bonob, Arkansas to mid Louisiana, pintails back and forth every day. And, and you, you know, they, they, they're getting something that they need in both places. And, you know, those things are important. You, you also mentioned a lot of, you know, talking about Arkansas bottomland hardwoods. And I know, you know, that is a bone of contention there and in mississippi and even in tennessee i mean we've lost so many of our bottomland hardwoods and, and you know let's, let's talk real briefly about that and and you know we'll start moving towards the end well, i mean here. that's the that's just a great example of of uh of the cycle of things you know we lost all those hardwoods for for one 
reason and one, mostly one reason, $10 soybean. And, and you know, okay, well, I got, I'm going to make a lot of money doing this and, and not, not thinking about the future, but they're gone. So now we're, we're reverting in some ways. And then we have areas that we, we're so afraid that they're not going to get flooded that we artificially flood them too long and we kill them. You know, there's a value in the types of trees that are there for waterfowl, for deer, for turkeys, whatever. And they're not really water tolerant. You know, God God flooded this country and that is known as Arkansas. I live in Little Rock. You got the Ozarks and the Washtals and, and, and then, you know, you got this Delta and it flooded naturally. And, you know, the flood of 1927, uh, they decided they were going to not let that happen anymore. Lost a lot of, a lot of lives and everything else, but you know, mother nature's a rough sucker. And, uh, you know, so now we're, now we, we, what the reason it was flooded and God had that in its purpose was because there wasn't any rice. That was acres. There wasn't any rice, but all that grass, that native prairie grass, all the, the grass seed, all the stalks of, of habitat and different things that, uh, that produce so much protein. And, you know, him would come down here and get what she needs. The most important element in all of that, which nobody sees, and you've never seen it, is the spiny-headed worm. I mean, you know, I'm convinced that Star Wars took Jabba the Hutt and and took the spines off of him, and and that's that's a spiny-headed worm. But they they are shred. They shred all that stuff, which allows that stuff to regrow. Mallards feed on it. The spiny head attaches to her guts or his guts and they poop it out and it starts all the process over again. It's the most perfect deal if we'll leave it alone and, and do some of this as naturally as possible, uh, help it along where we can, but don't kill it because we want to kill something. Take advantage of it. Kill something when you can take advantage of it, but don't sell the farm because you just got to kill it. Because you're only going to get a few years of that for it's, you know, understand that all the pieces and parts, that's what I, that's, that's where, that's where I get caught up in the, the passion and the, the arguments and, and everything else. Because, you know, if all you, if you're not digging into the sport you love, you don't really love it. You just love to get blood on your hands and, I mean, we, we, from the levees after 1927 to the dredging and everything else. And now, you know, holding water where we shouldn't for too long. It's, it's man trying to control the environment to suit himself. And, and Hey, we're, we're all in some way, probably a little bit guilty of at least, you know, I, I like it the way I like it too, but, uh, it, it normally screws us up, but Steve, we're, we're at the end of the hour and, and in wrapping up, uh, we normally ask for some words of wisdom and, do you have any final ones to close us out? I mean, just, just realize that uh, a greater entity created all this than, than the Corps of Engineers, you know? And uh, <laughs> That might be the widest <laughs> words we've heard in a while. <laughs> he knows how to deal with this. Uh, so let's just manage along. Let's don't get in the way of, of what, it's supposed to what is supposed to happen 
you know, just manage along. Manage along. I like that. How about you, Aaron? Well, I'll just harken back a little to the beginning with, with what Steve was saying about, you know, helping, helping less fortunate folks get opportunity, uh, taking care of the places that, that do provide opportunity. You know, those are, those are the core of, of the, the sportsman's ethos that I, that I love so much and the people that we love that do the conservation work and that stuff's just critical. And sometimes we forget about it while we're all off on our adventures doing the things we love, but grabbing somebody who's less fortunate, helping them, you know, and just doing things in general to help people education, you know, outreach, all those different things that, that make it possible to, for folks to be able to enjoy these things that are so amazing that we all get to enjoy that are, they're just so such a great part of living. So I just appreciated that story, Steve. And uh, I'll leave folks with that. Go, go get somebody outside who isn't, who isn't normally allowed that opportunity. Right. Amen. Well, and, if, and the shame part of it is, is when we start screwing with the environment, it's not the rich guys hunting clubs that are getting screwed with. Yeah. You know, it's the places where uh, the rest of us have to fight to get on. And, you know, so it's always, it's all, it, you know, it always runs downhill downstream and, you know, trying to, try to make sure we're not the, not at the bottom of it all the time. Yeah. There you go. And I'll just say that for those out there listening who, who are privileged and fortunate enough to already be in this world, hunting and fishing, make your voices heard, help other people get out there and enjoy it, but also make your voice heard to your representatives uh, and, and anyone you can reach, you know, uh, whether it's about bottomland hardwoods or coastal Louisiana or steelhead and salmon in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, it, we need help all over this country. Thank you, fellas. For more great content, check out NWF Outdoors social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Connect with us. We want to hear from you. Send us your ideas for podcast guests and questions in the comments. We are NWF Outdoors. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.